One of the biggest deterrents to people coming to faith in Jesus is the disconnect they often see in, in the church, talking a lot about love, yet not loving very well. Jesus is saying here in John 13, 35, the world will know you belong to me, not because of your bumper stickers, not because of the music you listen to, not because of who you vote for, not because you go to church, that the world will know you belong to me because you love one another. So how we treat each other, how we treat others, how we love one another, this stuff really matters to God. It's, it's a big deal to God. So this love that John is talking about, it, it, it comes into our life. It comes to us as Jesus invades you know, every aspect of our life. As the Holy Spirit fills us, fills us up, this love, it comes to us. This love that we've received, this love that we have, we become conduits of it. Not only does it come into our life, but it comes out of our life to impact other people. And what John is saying, is saying like the evidence that this has actually happened, the evidence that this has actually taken place in your life is how you love each other, how you, how, how you care for one another, how you lay your life down for each other. He says like, this is how the world knows. A lot of what we've been learning over the last several weeks in 1 John is that in this letter, uh, the Apostle John is really trying to show us uh, the true marks of a true Christian, right? And to do this, he's been using contrasting ideas, like if you're a Christian, then you walk in the light, you, you don't walk in darkness, contrasting idea. If, if you're a Christian, then you're a child of God, you're not a child of the devil, right? Contrasting Idea. Well, today we're going to look at the contrasting ideas of love and hate and life and death. How many of y'all know that when we start to talk about love in, in the church, it can just create some, some immediate tension? We start to talk about love in church, and immediately we start to bump into uh, some of the cultural challenges that that word creates. Um, you know, uh, we, we just, we live in a world where love has been essentially redefined and rebranded. Love means lots of different things to lots of different people. And so you start to talk about love and it just creates some tension in us. Okay, like, so what are we talking about exactly right now? Uh, I, I think one of the frustrations for me, one of the challenges for me has been, you know, in culture, just, you know, how love has essentially been defined or, or, or branded, and it's this, this mantra, this message, you know, and, and even the, the message of, like, you know, love is love or, or, or whatever. But I look around, and I see all sorts of people in, in, in culture that just flat out do not like each other, right? And so, so even, even though this is like a, a cultural value or message of love, whatever that means and however they want to define it, I, I look around, and I see people who actually don't, don't live that way. I, I, I look around and I see people who, who, who flat out do not, do not like each other. And, uh, and, and so this is, you know, incredibly <laughs> problematic. I, I think that we've just become content at times to be rude to people we don't even know. You know, content to, uh, you know, just yell at the server at the restaurant, right? Or to cut people off in line or in traffic. Like, just content to be this way. And what I really want to kind of push into today, a truth I want to give you, uh, and, and, you know, we, we do this each week. We share some things. Like, but I don't want this just to hit your head. I need you to try to start internalizing this because it'll, it'll really help you and, and affect you as we go. 
Um, but it's this thought right here. The more self-focused we become, the less others-focused we can be. The more self-focused we become, the less others-focused we can, we can be. There's only so much room. Do you agree? Like, there's, there's just only so much room. And, and, you know, when you and I start realizing that we are, we are living in, a, in an environment that is becoming less and less others-focused, we have to have eyes to see the telltale signs. We have to be able to notice what is really going on around us. Well, some of the telltale signs are things like joylessness. You know, we look around and we see people who just don't really like their life, and so they don't want other people to like their life as well. We see things like cynicism. Uh, you know, people are incredibly cynical. Uh, you know, somebody just, you know, nobody can be just as good as they uh, you know, present themselves to be or think they are, right? Uh, the things like bitterness, resentment, anger, the, the list goes on. These are telltale signs of living in an environment that is becoming less and less others-focused and more and more self-focused. Well, the reality of this is that this isn't just true in, you know, the, the greater uh, culture at large. This is true. This is true in me. Uh, this is true in you. That, that like we all find, our, find ourselves being pulled in this direction at times, don't we? We all find ourselves being pulled in this direction of becoming less and less others-focused and much more self-focused. And, and I don't know I, I, if, if, if you knew or not, but in the Christian life, having love for people is a pretty big deal. It's a pretty big deal, right? Well, but we, we just live in, 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 a, in a world where like this value... It, you know, is, is believed but not really walked out. It's, it's, it's like, yeah, we, yeah we, love, we love people, you know, be nice to people, be kind is kind of the thing. But I look around and I see like so much craziness. I'm like, how, how is this possible? Well, in the Christian life, love for people is, is massive. It's a huge deal. And I think it's easy for us to admit that within the greater culture at large, there's all sorts of people who just either do not love or even like other people. We can readily and quickly admit that like this is the narrative of you know our our dominant culture today but i think it's also true to say that far too many christians wind wind up losing their love for other people along the way i i think this isn't just something that we see out there somewhere in some abstract manner i think that we see this in the church as well where you know we get irritated with people we don't really have a value for people or like people as much you know as maybe we should. I think many Christians wind up losing their love and their value and their appreciation for other people all the time. Well, this is the type of Christian heart failure, if you will, that the Apostle John says must be avoided. This is the type of heart failure that, that Jesus says, if we don't get this right, we blow the mission. If we don't get this right, we, 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 there's no point. We, 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 we miss the goal. Years ago when I was in high school, my brother and I, he's three years older than me, uh, we got into a bit of an altercation in high school. Um, you know, him and I, like, we struggled growing up a little bit, you know, didn't really like each other a whole lot, uh, really competitive with each other, and then got into high school, became, became pretty good friends. Well, we had this night, one, one evening, uh, where, I mean, punches were thrown, right? Uh, I mean, closed fists, black and blue, it was, it was, it was wild, and, uh, and so, uh, long story short, the next morning, uh, we, we wake up, we're both incredibly sore from the night before, and we look at each other, and we're like, yeah, let's never do that again, okay? And I was like, yeah, man, that's probably a good idea. And so we decided to remedy the issue to make sure this never happens again by going out and buying boxing gloves. 
We went out, went out and bought boxing gloves uh, so that in, 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 the, you know, in the moments where we needed to just go at it, we could, we could uh, eliminate some of the, the long-term you know, issues and recovery would be faster. And so uh, we went out and bought boxing gloves. We had fun with this. You know, our friends would come over. We'd, we'd have like boxing nights and stuff like that. But like when we needed to, we'd grab the gloves, right? So I tell you the story because uh, for, for a couple reasons here, but I tell you the story because in the kingdom of God, family's kind of a big deal. In the kingdom of God, how we interact as family is a pretty big deal. And so much of what I want to talk about today, so much, so much of what I want to, want to share with you today is, is you know, how we treat each other as the family of God reveals whether or not we even belong to Jesus. The scriptures we're going to look at today, the scriptures that Emily just read that you heard, like really, really paint this idea that how we treat one another in the kingdom of God, how we treat one another as the family of God reveals whether or not we're even, we're even a Christian. So the dominant theme for the rest of this letter of 1 John is that if we really belong to Jesus, then we've been loved by Jesus. Right? And as a result of this love that we've experienced that is so powerful, so life-changing, this love now flows out of our life into the lives of other people. This is the dominant theme really for the remainder of this letter. That if, we, if we've experienced this transformative love, this life-changing love of Jesus, that it's something that we don't just keep to ourselves. It's not something that we just hoard and, and, and you know, just, just sort of protect within ourselves. It's something that we freely give away because it's changed us so drastically. Like, it's no secret that in, that, that in the Christian life, love is a, is a big deal, like I've, like I've already said. I mean, we strongly believe that God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. We believe love's a big deal. We, we believe and, and remember and recall the words of Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount when he tells his followers to love their enemies, to love those who hate them. And so, so we just know, like as, as Christians, as followers of Jesus, like it's important for us to, to not just receive this love from, from the Lord, but to also give it away so that it impacts other people's lives. Well, as we continue to read in 1 John, as we continue to study in this letter, what we find is that the Apostle John emphasizes love as well. In fact, love is a dominant theme in his writings. He talks about love over and over again. You see it in his gospel. You see it in, in, in the epistles. Love is a big deal to the Apostle John. But what's interesting about him is that he uses a little bit of a different approach. His approach to the topic of love is even different than Jesus' approach. He has a different strategy, a different angle. And so I want to kind of start there, sort of revealing uh, some of his strategy. And uh, let's start in 1 John chapter 3, verse 11. This is, what, uh, this is what it said. It says, this is the message you heard from the beginning. We should love one another. Let me say it again. This is the message you heard from the beginning. We should love one another. So what John is saying here is that the basic Christian message hasn't changed. Like it's, it's still the same. The message you heard from the beginning is still the message now, and that message is we should love one another. So how we treat each other, how we treat others, how we love one another, this stuff really matters to God. It's, it's a big deal to God. And so I mentioned just a minute ago that like John uses a different strategy. He uses a little bit of a different approach than Jesus because Jesus calls us to love our enemies and to love those who hate us, right? That's, that's, a, that's a lot. That's big. That's heavy. I mean, how do you even begin to you know, bite that off? John calls us first to a much more basic test. 
John calls us to love one another. Because if we can't even love you know, our Christian family, then what kind, of, what kind of Christians are we? Is really, really what he's getting at. Like, let's start here. Can you love one another? How well do you love each other in the kingdom of God? Because if you can't love your Christian family, then, then we got questions. We got problems. What kind of Christian, what kind of follower of Jesus are you anyway? John 13, 35, this is in the Gospel of John. Uh, John, John's writing this out, but these are the words of Jesus. And Jesus is speaking here. Uh, he says, by this all men will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. It's, it's an interesting thing to say, right? Because, because there's so many other things that we could do, actions we could take that, that would, in our minds, reveal to people that we're a disciple of Jesus, that we're a follower of Jesus. Like, we could go out and start sharing, uh, evangelizing, you know, the message of Jesus to people all over the place. I mean, we could, we could give all kinds of stuff away. We, we, could, we could give, you know, food every week until Jesus comes back to people week in and week out here at this church. We could continue to give 10% of everything that comes in, you know, uh, just right back out the door to help people who are in need. But, but what Jesus is saying here is that the world's going to know that you're my followers, that you're my disciples, not so much about, by, by how you love others. It's, it's first about how you love each other. Like how you really care for each other in the kingdom of God reveals to people that you're, you're an actual follower of Jesus. So this is so much of the essence of, of what John is writing about in, in this letter of 1 John. He's really talking about, you know, if we belong to Jesus, the idea that if, that if we've turned from sin and trusted in Jesus, then the telltale sign will be that we love each other well. It's a, it's a telltale sign. So you call yourself a follower of Jesus. You say you are a follower of Jesus. You say you've turned from sin. You've trusted in the Lord. Well, well the, the way that, that we can tell is by how you love other brothers and sisters in Christ. The way we love one another, the way we care for one another, it proclaims Jesus to those who don't even know him yet. It's, it's one of the ways we evangelize. It's one of the ways that we, you know, we actually reveal to people that we really mean what we say when, when, we, when we talk about love. That it's not just some word that's empty and hollow, but it's something that we embody and something that we live out. N.T. Wright says this, he says, he says, the Christian faith grows directly out of and must directly express the belief that in Jesus the Messiah, the one true God has revealed himself to be love incarnate. Love in the flesh, okay. And those who hold this faith embrace it as the means of their own hope in life, must themselves reveal the self-same fact before the watching world. Love incarnate must be the badge that the Christian community wears, the sign not only of who they are, but of who their God is. This is a big deal. If you didn't know, in the Christian faith, in the Christian life, love is a pretty big deal. Deal And what's going on here is, is really this call to notice, to be aware of how the world sees you, of how the world sees us. So, so, so that's, that's like big picture. And a lot of times we can think like big church, global church stuff. But when we kind of, you know, um, shrink it down and just think about our local context here, New Point Church, the question should be, how does the world see us? How does our community see us? How does our neighborhood see us? 
how do people who know that you attend New Point, that you're a follower of Jesus, see you? Are we loving each other well? One of the biggest deterrents to people coming to faith in Jesus is the disconnect they often see in, in the church, talking a lot about love, yet not loving very well. Not loving other people always very well, but also not loving each other very well. Jesus is saying here in John 13, 35, the world will know you belong to me, not because of your bumper stickers, not because of the music you listen to, not because of who you vote for, and not because you go to church, but that the world will know you belong to me because you love one another. So what John does is he, he begins with a contrast. I, I told you that he uses contrasting ideas over and over again, and we've seen that up until now. Well, he's going to start with another contrasting idea, and he's going to give a negative example. He's going to say, hey, here's an example, like, don't do that, right? And so in verse 12, this is what he says. He says, do not be like Cain, who belonged to the evil one and murdered his brother, right? Public service announcement. Do not be like Cain. And why did he murder him? Because his own actions were evil and his brothers were righteous. There was jealousy, right? And, and so if you were to read the Old Testament, specifically Genesis chapter 4, you would read an example of hatred. You would read an example of a failure to love. You'd read the story of Cain and Abel. Cain and Abel were the sons of Adam and Eve. Cain was a farmer. So he was out working in the fields. Abel was more of like a shepherd. He was looking after the livestock. He was looking after the animals. And the time came for them to offer up an offering to God. Cain decides he's not going to give his best. He's going to hold something back. So he decides to come to God and give God an inadequate offering. And what happens? God rejects the offering. Cain, on the other hand, or Abel, on the other hand, he, he decides that he's going to give his best to God. And so as the story goes, he gives a righteous offering to God, and it is accepted by God. God, it pleases the heart of God. So what happens? Cain begins immediately to get jealous. And he, he, he immediately begins to have hatred towards his brother. Something that's common with siblings, right? <laughs> Sibling rivalries. All you guys raising kids right now, you're like, is it ever going to end? You know, but like, don't be like Cain. Just start telling your kids, don't be like Cain. He becomes so overcome by his hatred of his brother that he lures Abel out into the field and he murders him. So this is, this is a story that is so common, right, in, in, in Judaism, so common in their history. It's something they know well that, that everybody knows what, what, what uh, John is talking about here. And he's saying, look, like, don't do this. And what's interesting is he's about to contrast. He's saying, don't do this, but I'm about to give you an example of who you need to follow, right? It's going to be Jesus. But what he wants us to understand here is that um, is that there is just a close connection between hatred and murder. He wants us to see that, like, th th this stuff goes hand in hand. Don't, don't hate your brother. Don't hate your sister. And, and really the, the definition that we pull out of this story for hatred is that hate is really sacrificing others to serve yourself. It's having a disregard for other people. It's not, uh, not, not caring for their well-being. It's, it's, it, may, it may not be the word you choose. You may not say, I hate, 
but, but it's really sacrificing others to serve yourself. And so the disobedience for Cain really in this story, like we're talking about, it came from a lack of faith, right? He, he held back his offering. He wasn't willing to give it all. He, it was a lack of faith. Well, what's interesting about his story is that his lack of faith then leads to disobedience before God. Which then, do you notice that his disobedience to God doesn't lead to remorse and humility, which is where it should lead him. His disobedience to God instead leads to hatred and pride. Hatred and pride. And he begins to despise his brother. The next verse, verse 13, John says, Do not be surprised, my brothers, if the world hates you. Do not be surprised, my brothers, if the world hates you. So what he's getting at here, and I'm not going to spend long on this verse because it's kind of self-explanatory, but he's saying as the children of God, don't be surprised when the world doesn't like you. Don't be surprised when the world hates you, even. But what he's really getting at here, if you can kind of read through, you know, the, the, the passage of Scripture, what he's really saying is that there is something else that actually should surprise you. Hatred from the world shouldn't surprise you. But when you start to see hatred within the church, that is something that should surprise you. That's something that should shock you. That is something that should not be there because we should love one another. You know, over the years of ministry, you know, I typically try to respond to emails, phone calls, you know, Facebook messages that come in uh, from time to time. You know, occasionally I preach a message or make a decision that needs some clarification for some people. And uh, someone will write, they'll ask me a question, and I always try to respond in a way that I hope meets that person's needs. So, you know, whatever their, their, their question is, whatever their concern is, you know, I try to under, be understanding, you know, um, be humble in my response and approach because, you know, you just never know why. Um, maybe they didn't understand what I was saying. I can bring some clarification. But a small handful of times over the years, I mean, I'm talking like, like three, to, three to five times over the, over the years, you know, of, of 16 plus years, I've had it happen that the comments that come in are actually pretty accusatory. They're so hostile, seemingly so angry, and who can, who can read exactly where a person's heart is when they write something, but there's such a vitriol, you know, behind their message, that it becomes very confusing for me because I'm not really sure how I should respond to the message. I don't know if I, if, if I should respond to them as like a brother and sister in Christ, because on, on, on one hand, you know, the words they use in life would say that they are, they are a Christian, but the way I'm experiencing them right now, I, I can't even tell if they love me, you know? I can't, I can't even tell. And so it feels very, like, accusatory. It feels very angry and all these things, and I'm just going, like, I, I don't even know. Do I respond to them as an actual brother or sister, or do I just respond to them as someone who's not, you know? And this is why John is so clear in these verses when he says, like, don't be like Cain, guys. Don't be like Cain. Don't let this stuff get in your heart. Don't let, it, don't let the stuff, that, the, the hatred, the, the, the offense build up in your heart that it causes you to mistreat people that you're going to spend eternity with in heaven. He says we should love one another. Again, uh, to quote N.T. Wright one more time, he says this. He says, only today I was talking to someone who, com who commenting gloomily on various experiences of actual church life, suggested that churches should have a danger sign outside, warning people to expect nasty, gossipy, snide conversation and behavior if they came in. 
That sadly has always been a reality in church life. That is why from St. Paul onwards, Christian writers have been at pains to insist that it should not be like that with us. The rule of love, I say again, is not an optional extra. It is the very essence of what we are about. If this means we need some new reformations, so be it. So be it. Verse 14 is maybe the most significant verse of the day. Uh, it, it's one that, that uh, I, I think that if you can get this verse, it, it, can actually, it can actually change some things in you and me. It can change some things in our church. Uh, this is what John says. He says, we know that we have passed from death to life because we love our brothers. Anyone who does not love, what's that word? Remains in death. And what's the example of death? Cain and Abel, right? Anyone who does not love, th 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 this is what that means, okay? So we know we have passed from death to life. That's what John is saying. Well, how do, how do we know this? There's something very significant here that he's writing. Before he even tells us, you know, why or because of what, he says, we know that we have passed from death to life. Well, in, or in order to, to really know this, there's a couple things you have to know. One, you have to know that you were dead. If you know you've passed from, from death to life, you have to actually know that at one point you were dead. And to understand this, to know that you've passed from life, you have to actually know you were dead and know that something significant happened that is taking you from death to life. Listen to me, the love of God makes no sense to you, to anybody, if you do not realize that at one point you were dead, you were dead in your sin, right? The love of God makes zero sense. If you do not, need, if you do not realize that you needed to be saved, and so what John is saying here is saying, like, we know. We, we know some things here. We know that we have passed from death to life. We recognize the state that we were in, the situation that we were in, unable to save ourselves. We know that we were dead, and we know that something significant has happened through Jesus that has taken us from death to life. And the evidence of this is that we love our brothers and our sisters, right? That's, that's what is being communicated Right here. So this love that John is talking about, it, it, it comes into our life. It comes to us as Jesus invades, you know, every aspect of our life. As the Holy Spirit fills us, fills us up. This love, it comes to us. And as a result, you and I become conduits of this love. Right? This love that we've received, this love that we have, we become conduits of it. Not only does it come into our life, but it comes out of our life to impact other people. And what John is saying is saying, like, the evidence that this has actually happened, the evidence that this has actually taken place in your life is how you love each other, how you, how, how you care for one another, how you lay your life down for each other. He says, like, this is how the world knows. It's the evidence. You see, you see the logic here? We receive this love. Jesus invades our life. I mean, I mean, we receive the Holy Spirit. All of a sudden, we become conduits for the love we receive to flow in and flow out. But if you're not spiritually alive, if you're spiritually dead, which is what he's also getting at, it's a contrasting idea. He says, then the evidence of your spiritual state of death is that you don't love Christians. And in fact, he's saying, like, like really, you hate them. A lot of people over the years who have said, man, I, like, I, 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 can, I, can, I can love Jesus just fine without going to church. I can love Jesus just fine. I just hate Christians. You know, there's a lot of people who talk like that, and I, that stuff scares me for them. You know, it's like that's just not, that's just not right. 
So to go from death to, to, I'm sorry, to go from life to eventual death, that's the normal way of life, isn't it? We live and then we die. But for the Christian, it works a whole lot differently than that. We pass from death to life. It's, it's death in reverse, right? This is how it, how it works. All of us expect to pass from life to eventual death, but with Jesus, everything gets flipped around. Everything changes. And so this verse again, he says, we know that we have passed from death to life because we love our brothers. It's the evidence. Anyone who does not love remains in death. And this is, this is something that John does over and over in this letter, is he really tries, he really tries to give us the assurance of our salvation. He writes in, in chapter 5, he says, I write these things to you so that you will know that you are saved. Right? So he's not trying to, 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 to leave us, after we read all this, with doubt in our mind of whether or not we're actually going to heaven or not. He's trying to say, like, here's the, here's the true marks of a true Christian. Ask yourself, do you see these things in your life? Are you walking in the light as Jesus in the light, is in the light, or are you walking in darkness? Are, are, are you really a child of God, or are you a child of the devil, right? Is there, is there love in your life, or is there hate, right? Are you living in life or in death? Like, what is really going on? And so John is writing these things to give these people the assurance of their salvation. If you're taking notes, I want you to see this with me. We can know we have passed from death to life by our love for other Christians, in fact, having a love for the people of God is a basic sign of salvation. It's a basic sign. It's a basic sign of being born again. What's interesting about, about love is, in, in loving other people is that, you know, those you love, you want to be with. Those you love, you want to spend time with. Those you love, you miss, and you cannot wait to see them, right? Those you love, you reorder your plans to make time for them so that you can be with them. You reorder your priorities to spend time with them. This is like speaking to, to fellowship. Like, how do you love people well if, uh, you know, how, how do you lo love people very well if, if you hardly even know them or barely ever see them? Right? Like, how, how is that possible? It's, it's, it's not possible. And the way we can know that we have passed from death to life is, is, is in part by how well we love our brothers and our sisters in Christ. Verse 15, John says, anyone who hates his brother is a murderer, and you know that no murderer has eternal life in him. Now, let me just bring some clarity here. John, um, John is not saying that, that there are no murderers who are in heaven, right? There are, there are uh, those who have murdered people who have repented, put their faith in Jesus, turned from their ways. They may not have ever gotten out of jail, but they are in heaven today. Okay, I, I truly believe that. What he is talking about today, he's talking about the practice of murder, right? Because it's pretty obvious that those who murder over and over again with no remorse are not living in the kingdom of light. That's going to be pretty obvious. So John, what he does here, and what you have to catch is that he actually compares murder to hatred. He, he, he's, he's saying, like, like look, like don't, don't just think that, like, because you've never actually gone through with it, that you're not just as guilty. He says they're virtually the same thing. One exists on the outside, murder. One exists on the inside, hatred. They're the same thing. And what he's doing here in this verse is something very similar to what Jesus did in the Sermon on the Mount, right, when he compared murder to anger. If you're taking notes, look at this with me here. With Jesus, there's no difference between what exists in the flesh and what exists in the heart. 
To hate is to despise. To hate is to cut off from relationship. And murder is simply the fulfillment of that attitude. So John is saying, like, look, don't just think that because you've not followed, you haven't followed through on something you'd like to do that, you, that you're, in a, you're in a good place here. He's saying, like, check your heart. Guard your heart. What we allow to exist in our heart matters. Bitterness and offense and you know, all of these things, what we allow to, 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 to take root in our life, it matters. What you feed grows and whatever you starve dies, right? These are, these are the things John is getting at here, like guard your heart, tend to your heart. It's a big deal. Now, verse 16 through 18, like John makes a hard pivot, right? He starts to move away from the negative example, and he starts to give us the contrasting example of Jesus. And this is what he says here in verse 16. This is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us. That's love defined right there. And he, he says, and we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers. If anyone has material possessions and sees his brother in need but has no pity on him, how can the love of God be in him? Dear children, let us not love with words or tongue, but with actions and in truth. So we see here love defined. Listen, you may think you know what love is. We for sure live in a world and in a culture that thinks they know what love is and has rebranded and redefined love all they want. You, have, you may have used this word at different times and in different ways, but do not be misled about what love really is. John says right here that real love isn't just something that is felt. It's not just an inward feeling. It's not just an emotion that you feel. He says love is demonstrated. Love is shown. Right? Paul says that, that Christ demonstrated his love for us while we were yet sinners. Words and feelings only go so far, right? Sooner or later you have to prove it. Like I can tell my wife I love her all I want, but at some point like there has to be a demonstration of that love or it just begins to mean nothing, right? And so sooner or later, you have to prove it. You have to demonstrate your love. And John says very brilliantly here, he says, love is defined this way. Love is demonstrated this way through the giving of Jesus on the cross. That's what love is. And then he, then, then he doesn't just stop there. He says, and we ought to be like Jesus. Wow. Like that's, like what? So what does love look like in your life? What does love look like in your relationships? What does love look like in your marriages? What does love look like in the church amongst your other brothers and sisters? He says, like, it ought to look like this. Jesus laying down his life for the sins of the world. So how do we love? We love like Jesus. We love like Jesus. And so the contrast is here is, again, that Cain killed his brother for his own benefit, but Jesus laid down his life for the benefit of others. It's the contrast. He said, like, you're going to pick one or the other. What are you going to do? Are you going to lay down your life for your brothers and sisters? Now, most of us would say, you know, that we would, most of us would probably raise our hand and be like, yeah, I, I, I would lay down my life, brothers and sisters. You know, like somebody came in here, maybe they had a, a gun or something like that, and they're like, yeah, I'd stand up, I'd take the bullet, I'd do that kind of stuff. And we, in theory, we talk about, we, we can maybe talk ourselves into thinking that we would lay down our lives for our brothers and sisters. 
But when do we ever actually have an opportunity to do something like that, right? Like, never. I mean, you'll live your entire life and never have that opportunity, right, to just, like, step in front of a bus for, like, your brothers and sisters in Christ or somebody like that. I mean, it's never going to happen. Very rarely, right? I mean, mean, there's a good chance none of us will ever have an opportunity like that to act upon this verse in a literal sense. So what happens if you don't, if you don't read the, 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 you know, the, the fullness of these scriptures is we can just internalize a verse like this that we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers and sisters and we can internalize it in a very abstract way where we see it as like a, a good intention rather than an application. We see it as a good intention rather than a reality of how we live our life. And John seems to know that here. That seems to be why he goes uh, you know, a step further. And that's why he begins to tell us how to walk out this verse in a real practical way. By saying that if you have the capability to meet a brother's needs and do nothing to meet those needs, then how can you say you love that brother? And what he's getting at here, the point he's making is that, is that you know, we all have material possessions, don't we? We all have material possessions. Everyone has material possessions. As we look around the world around us and we see our brothers and sisters in material need, we should not close off our hearts to them. Right? We should have affection towards them, and that affection is born out of love. You know, like our, our board on Friday, we met and we talked about you know, what was uh, some needs that had been presented to us by some of our other elders. We looked at the budget. Uh, there are pastors in India uh, that have reached out that we support and, and know, and, and, and uh, we authorize money to go out the door to, to them. And, I mean, this is, this is like... You know, we could have just looked at their needs and just been like, yeah, you know, it's, it's, it's going gonna, it's gonna to be tough on the budget this month, you know? But, like, these are our brothers and sisters, and, 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 and we have an obligation to care for them and to love them. This affection is to be born out of love. And every one of us can find moments and opportunities where we look to help a brother or sister who are experiencing tough times. And let me just, let me just do an, a, a sidebar for a moment. Like, this is why life groups are so important. This is why life groups matter. This is why we want people in life groups. It's because this is where we do life together. This is where we have opportunities to apply the truths of this text. The most visible sign that we belong to Jesus is the way that we self-sacrifice and care and love for each other. This is why, I mean, life groups matter. That's why we want you in life groups and in community with other people in the church this way. Yeah. Like, we gotta be willing to give up like that which is ours. That's just that, 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 that which we think is ours, like to those who are in need, so that their needs may be met. And we do all of this in the name of Jesus, right? Because we genuinely care and love for other people. There's this, this thing that just happens in us because the love of God has changed our life. It starts to flow out and affect other people. Community matters. Being in relationship with other people matters. Other brothers and sisters matter. If you're taking notes, Christians are not shaped in isolation. They are shaped in community, and they are shaped by community. You're not shaped in isolation. You cannot be separated from the formative process of community and expect to love one another very well. It just does not work. There's a lot of people who want to give me some 
some, some, some thought and feedback regarding like how often, you know, should we should be in church and, you know, does it really matter? Can I still love Jesus? Can I still go to heaven? I'm like, man, I don't even, I don't even think that, that's what we're talking about here. We're talking about actually making the most of the time we have been given for the kingdom of God on this earth. And to do that, you know, we are formed in community and by community. We're not formed in isolation. When Christianity becomes something that is just personal, we start to get in trouble. Well, I got a personal relationship with Jesus. You know, this is a very personal thing. Yeah, that's true. Like, like I, I believe that Jesus affects us on a personal level. But we are not just formed personally by Jesus in some, you know, some vacuum. We are formed by Jesus within community and through relationships with other people. When Christianity becomes only personal, you know what happens? Is we don't have to, pe- we don't have to feel accountable to anyone for our action or our inaction. I'm accountable to Jesus. I mean, I can't tell you the number of times I've heard that kind of stuff over the years, and it's, it's ridiculous. You're, you're, so, okay, let me tell you. Let me, let me get that straight. You're, you're, you're accountable to Jesus? Like, he's the one who's going to tell you yes or no, or you should or you shouldn't? Like, that's ridiculous stuff. It, 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 it negates the significance of the church that has existed for 2,000 years, the important formative process that the church is to have in our life. And why we need one another, because we're not good on our own. Left all alone, I make bad decisions. Left all alone, you make bad decisions for your life. We need each other, and we need to submit to one another and be accountable to one another, that we're actually living out the things of Jesus in a proper way. Or we'll just go and do whatever we want to do. Contrary to the values values of secular culture, Christians are not self-made. They're not self-made. God deliberately and intentionally shapes the heart of the believer through community. There is this myth that exists in American culture that says if you're going to make a difference with your life, then you have to go at it alone. Right? It just seems that we see this like everywhere. We see this in like, you know, with superheroes. All of a sudden, you know, like, you know, Batman shows up on the scene or whoever, Superman, and like there's like all of these like you know, gangsters or whatever who are who are in community, right? They're all there's like a ton of them. Batman's like, I got this, you know, or Superman's like, he, like, I only need myself, I can figure this out. Like, there is this great, deeply seated myth in American culture that says if you're going to make a difference with your life, you've got to do it by yourself. Well, for us, to lo- to, to, uh, for us to love well as Jesus followers, hear me out, this myth has to be debunked. It's something you have to refuse to believe. You will not love other people well if, 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 you, if you choose to, to believe and ascribe to, to that type of thinking. That, that, that you're, you're good by yourself or you can just figure this out on your own. The myth that says me, Jesus, and my Bible is all I need, it has to go. Because you know, let, me, let, me, let me just go as far as to just say this. I think it's wicked. I think it's a scheme of the enemy to trap people, to get people isolated, to, 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 to pick them off. Me, Jesus, and my Bible is all I need. Like, like that is not true. You're not formed in isolation. You're formed in community, and you're formed by community. C.S. Lewis says this. He says, it is easier to be enthusiastic about humanity with a capital H than it is to love individual men and women, especially those who are uninteresting, exasperating, depraved, or otherwise unattractive. Loving everybody in general may be an excuse for loving nobody in particular. Yeah.
John writes in his gospel, chapter 15, he writes in the famous discourse that Jesus has with his disciples. He talks about, you know, the, the vine and the branches, and Jesus says, my command is this, love each other as I have loved you. As I have loved you. Love each other. So this is a statement that Jesus makes at the Last Supper. Right, there's this series of chapters, like six or seven chapters there, right, right in, in the Gospel of John, which is just all about one night. Well, chapter 15 is, is the night of the Last Supper, and Jesus is talking to his disciples. He's washing their feet. This is the near, near the end of his life. He shares this final meal with them. John is making a point here, and, and you can miss this. Uh, you know, it, it's common to, to miss this just when you, when you just read through, but he's really making a point here that Jesus loved his disciples to the very end. Like, he's at the end of his life, he's about to be handed over, and he's making a, a, a real point that, like, Jesus has loved his disciples, like, through it all up until the end. It's not some casual observation, right, that I'm making here. It, it's not some casual observation that John is making. It's a statement that punctuates the quality of Jesus' love. It's a statement that punctuates the kind of love that Jesus had for his disciples. Now, surely Jesus must have at some point been tempted to just give up on his disciples, Surely there had to be moments along the way where Jesus is like, yeah, these guys just are not getting it. Like, I, I am done with them. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to get rid of them. I'm going to start over, right? I mean, think about it. At this moment, at the Last Supper, at the end of really their training, just about to the end of their training, these guys were still too proud to serve one another. They're still concerned about the pecking order. They're still jockeying for the good jobs that were coming when the kingdom would eventually be established. Within a few hours of this incredible moment at the Last Supper and Jesus washing their feet, Jesus' own inner circle would fall asleep while Jesus needed them to pray, pray with him and for him in the Garden of Gethsemane, right? This is all stuff going on. Jesus already knew that his, his disciples would abandon him and deny him multiple times over the next few days and Yet what happens? He loves them still. He still loves them. And this is the kind of love Jesus is, is, is uh, telling his disciples to reciprocate. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. Let me just give you a couple thoughts as I get ready to wrap up here. Um, and you guys can come on up. Like Jesus, we cannot make the giving of love contingent on the actions and, in, and, and attitudes of others. We cannot make the giving of love contingent on the actions and attitudes of others. Listen, you, you gotta catch this. If you and I, as Jesus followers, if we reflect the same fickleness as culture as it, as it pertains to love and value for people, then we cannot call people to a higher standard of love. Like we are, we are unable to call people to a higher standard of love if our standard for love is the same as that of the dominant culture. That I'll love you as, as long as you're lovable. Or I'll love you as long as, as you never do anything you know, wrong to me. Or I'll love you as long as your reputation is, is perfect. As long as you never screw up and there's never you know, news about you, you know, that, that people find out about. I'll love you as long as you, know, you fill in the blank. If that is how we you know, define love and is that, that's how we demonstrate love to people, then we put ourselves in a position of never being able to call people up to a higher standard of love. 
Reggie McNeil in his book, Worker of Heart, says this. He says, if our love does not have the character to wash the feet of proud people, then we have heart work ahead. Then we have heart work ahead. The other thing I would just say is, you know, we can't generate this kind of love on our own. This isn't something you just like muster up. It's not something that you just effort your way to. This is, we cannot generate this kind of love on our own. It doesn't, it doesn't come from us in the first place, right? It's a, it's a different kind of love. It's an otherworldly kind of love. Thankfully, we're not just sharing our love. We're sharing Jesus's love with people, right? If I had to share my love, oh my gosh. Like some of you, like, you know what I mean? Like, I had to share my love, like, we wouldn't be going very far. I'd be, I'd be running on empty. But we're not called to share our love. We're called to share Jesus' love. If we are truly a people who are committed to sharing Jesus' love with each other first and with the world, then we must discover Jesus' love for ourselves and for other people. We have to discover this love. We have to experience this love. We have to encounter this love. You have to discover and rediscover Jesus' love for yourself and for others, or you will become frustrated and burned out from trying to share your own love. You just, you just, you just get to a point where you just run out. It's like, I, I'm empty now. I just, I just can't handle people. They're just crazy. I just, I need a break. You know, I need, I, I'm not going to go to church for the next month because, man, those people, you know, it's just, this is what happens. You just get burned out. You just get tired of people because what happens is, is if you're not tied into the love of God, then all you have to give is your love. And when you have to function out of your own love for people, it will not last. It will run on empty over and over and over again. But I wonder, you know, instead of viewing people as draining or instead of viewing people in the church or whatever as a disruption to your plans, I wonder if you tried viewing yourself instead as a conduit of Jesus' love, what that would do, if it would, if it would help maybe reframe things for you in a way that would bring life to you, that would, that would cause you to see things differently. It's not just about like, man, people are draining or people have problems or whatever, but it's like, man, no, 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 no. Like I have experienced this life-changing love, the power of Jesus' love, and there is something in it. Like God wants to use me as a conduit to land his love through me to other people, to earth. I wonder if it would reframe things for you. I wonder if it would make your neighbor look different. I wonder if it would make some people in church look different. People who just, man, are they ever going to like get their stuff figured out? You know, like it, would, it ever, would, it, would it maybe reframe things for you? What if we just took a different approach? What if we took a different approach? What if instead of looking at, you know, the broader or bigger issues within church and Christianity, which are all out there, and we can talk about, well, the church just doesn't, do this, or the church just doesn't do that. We have all these problems we talk about in the church. What if, what if we did a, took a different approach and we all looked inward first? And what if we just said something like this, Lord Jesus, show me where I'm not living out your love for others. What, what, what if we just looked inward? So God, would you just evaluate my life? Show me where I'm not living out your love for other people. What do I need to let go of, God? What do I need to release? What do I need to change? Where do I need to repent? So that when the world looks on, they will say, they will say, man, those people love each other and they must be connected to Jesus. Like that is what we want. That is how this works. 
How can you better serve and love, love those whom God has placed in your life and whom God has placed in your church? How can you better serve them and how can you better love them? Where are the needs? Right? Where can you sacrifice? What preference can you let go of? What right can you forfeit? What status can you deny? Like maybe I don't need to live this way. Maybe I don't need to have every, everything. Maybe I don't need to live. What status can you deny? Just because you can doesn't mean you should. What significance can you let go of? What power can you give away? And instead of accumulating everything, what is it that God wants you to release? What is it that God wants you to give away? So that others are served and ultimately loved. It's interesting, you know, like, like giving, being generous or whatever, you know. I've had times in my life where I haven't been very generous and God has incredibly blessed me. I've had times where we've been very generous and God has incredibly blessed me. And I've realized along the way that like the blessing of God isn't just connected to whether or not I'm generous or not generous. It's connected to how good he is. But the reason why we, we are to be generous and the reason why we lay down our lives and the reason why we go without so that others can, it has everything to do with our heart. It has everything to do with what, we, what, what, what the enemy wants to do to your heart so that, so that you can't, you're not attached to things. So that things don't have you. So that when you look at people around you and you look at what's going on in the kingdom of God, you're like, oh my gosh, like God has perfectly positioned me right now to fill that need. It wasn't mine anyway. It wasn't mine anyway. Everything I have just belongs to God. What can you let go of? What power can you give away so that others are served and ultimately loved? Would you stand with me this morning? Heavenly Father, we just come before you in this house right now, and I, I just ask God, Holy Spirit, that you would, you would seal this word. I know, that, I know that this was a hard message. I know that it wasn't just like a feel-good message, but I know that, God, your word was proclaimed. It was taught. It was faithfully taught this morning. I pray that the truth of the word of God would hit our hearts. It would impact us this morning in fresh new ways. I pray we'd walk out of here maybe, maybe thinking that, this should shift or this should change or these priorities should be different. God, may we be a church that loves each other well, not just because we want to love well, but because we want the world to look on and see these people are actual followers of Jesus. God, would you remove anything out of our lives that would impede that? Move anything out of our lives that would keep us from being like, like, like people who possess the true marks of a true Christian, oh God. I pray that the love of God would flow in and through each and every one of us to each other, to people we know, to people we don't know. I pray that in this house, God, that the love of God would be such a marker. It would be such a, distinct, a distinction for this church that the love of God is, is freely given. It's freely shared. It's something we don't hold or keep to ourselves. It's not just some personal thing, but it's something that we... we 
we give away. It's something that we share with other people. Lord, would you increase our value for the other people in this room and the other people in this church that you died for, that you gave your life for, God, and as you laid your life down for them, would you begin to continue to, to, to just build in us this, this desire to willingly lay down our lives for our other brothers and sisters, oh God. And through this, may we stand on this kind of love, love for one another, to then take it to the next step, to start to love our enemies, to start to love, to love those who don't even like us, those who disagree with us. God, show us what real love is, where it's been rebranded, where it's been redefined. I pray that the truth of what love really is, that Jesus laying down his life on the cross that that kind of love would be what we are known for, how we're defined by. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.